I invite you to take your Bible, join me in the book of Hebrews, in the second chapter of Hebrews chapter 2, as you're turning there. First, I think probably most of you know, but not everyone, that uh, Daniel Mertham's little sister showed up Friday. Uh, Selah is among us, seven pounds and six, is that right? Anyway, everybody's doing fine, and Paul, thank you for filling in for Nathan again. We appreciate that. We'll pray for them and the joy of what the Lord has done. We rejoice in that. As we were worshiping today, it struck me just how thankful I am for this church what I've seen and gotten to witness the Lord do here among us. It uh, was a bit overwhelming for a moment, and I fear we don't often enough stop to give thanks for what the Lord grants us through this fellowship. But if I start down that path, I'll preach an entirely different sermon than the one I have prepared. So, the question before the house is Hebrews, the second chapter, beginning at the 10th verse. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. And now, Father, by your Spirit, take this your word. And by the unction, the power of the third person of the Trinity, bring this home to us. May you be glorified, for it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Have you ever heard someone say something like this? Well, if I were God, I would, and then fill in the blank. At best, that's a foolishly arrogant statement involving you in a second guessing of the Almighty. At worst, it's just downright dangerous, if not blasphemous. Personally, we are all thankful you are not God. 
And you know, sometimes the scriptural view of Christianity is so, offense, so offensive, they feel compelled to try to improve on it. There are parts of it that just rub right against the grain. You see it in the Gospels. In Matthew 16, Caesarea Philippi, Peter makes the great confession, the good confession. Who do you say I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then just a few moments later, as Jesus begins talking about suffering and dying, Peter's words, here's a paraphrase, Lord, you don't mean that. Don't say that. You're taking all the wind out of their sails. What's wrong with you? That's never going to happen. Not so, Lord. And goes from hearing initially the first confession, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, to get behind me, Satan. Hmm. Leo Tolstoy thought so little of Christ, he admired him, but considered himself Christ's elder brother and a superior thinker. Wow. The believers who are receiving this letter were under persecution and incredible pressure to abandon the Christian faith, or at least to modify it, so that it would be less offensive. Part of that modification was somehow trying to categorize Jesus as a type of angel, or maybe somewhere between angels and men, or maybe a little bit different. But in essence, the whole idea of this God-man, and more offensively to them, the God-man who suffers and dies was for some just almost too much to endure. Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The stumbling block is, the Old Testament said, everyone hanged on a tree is cursed. How? Could the Messiah be cursed? From the Greek side, people that are crucified are not leaders. Crucified criminals are not kings. And oh, by the way, when Rome puts you to death, you stay dead. But the author here uses language to elevate Christ and Note in that first sentence at verse 10, refers to him as, and what he did as fitting, proper. This is the way it must be. Our tendency, brothers and sisters, is we turn away from suffering because we don't want to face exactly how dire our situation is. We turn from it because it makes us uncomfortable. We turn from it because it displays weakness. And all of that stuff, we even struggle and sometimes find offensive. But you see, it's only through a suffering Savior that we have salvation. It's only a suffering Savior that's fit to save us. So consider this first. Verses 10 to 13, Jesus pioneers, trailblazes, if you will, our salvation. It was fitting that he, 
for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He accomplishes God's purpose here. God's overall purpose. It was fitting that He, for whom and by whom, all things exist. Now again, he's echoing the earlier verses in chapter 1 at the beginning of the chapter as he talks about Jesus as the expression of God's glory, that if you want to see God, you look at Jesus. And he's saying this transcendent, omnipotent creator has a purpose in what he does. The wording here sounds a bit like Isaiah 43, verse 6. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God's overall purpose in making Jesus the trailblazer, the pioneer of our salvation Seen in Isaiah, everything exists by His will and for His glory. You see it in Paul's sermon on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. He will, at verse 28, say, For in Him, speaking of God, the unknown God they didn't know, in Him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed His offspring. God's final purpose in salvation, my friends, is that out of creation... And then out of redemption, he is glorified. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now that is God's overall purpose, but there's also God's saving purpose. That saving purpose, I and the children, God has given me. Now, I love this because what it shows us is that Jesus doesn't somehow have to enter into a role of somehow convincing the Father to save us. It's not that one-third of the Trinity was against us and another third was for us. By the way, talking about the Trinity in thirds is really bad theology. Don't do that. Wow. That could get pulled out of context, and I'm a heretic. Um, there was no division in the persons of the Trinity as to this matter of saving his people. God chose this way to save. Jesus doesn't somehow have to change God's mind. In fact, John 17, 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. When you read the Gospel of John, pay close attention to that particular phrase, the ones you gave me. Because over and over again, Jesus, especially chapters 14 and following, will speak much about what he has done for the ones the Father gave him. God has purpose there's a purpose of his glory and there's also the purpose of him saving what god does he does intentionally but you see this isn't just about accomplishing god's purpose 
although that is central, it also shows us and approves, if you will, Jesus as the Savior. When you read there in verse 10, and he uses this language, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That word founder is used in another text in Hebrews. It's used in Hebrews 12.2. Here's how the ESV translates it. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That word for founder, strange little Greek word, means and has in it this idea of a scout, a trailblazer, the lead in mountain climbers. It's the one who looks for and seizes the moment and what is needed for us to be saved. And he does this through his suffering. Notice it says he is perfect through suffering. Now, you read that, you say, well, no, whoa, whoa. What do you mean he was perfect through suffering? I thought the second person in the Trinity, the Son of God, who takes on humanity, becomes a man, was perfect. And you're right. The perfection that's spoken of here is not the perfection of divine nature. It is not the perfection even of his human nature. The perfection here is the perfection of becoming exactly what you and I must have to have a Savior. This is how he is made perfect. Through his suffering, he is perfectly fitted to be our Savior. And so much so that it says he becomes part of the same family as humanity. Brothers and sisters, never run from these deep mysteries of the faith. They'll actually anchor you as you move forward in the Christian life. Here he is, of the same family. And behold the language. I will put my trust in him. Up earlier, verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers. And in the end of verse 13, behold I and the children God has given me. Jesus takes on our humanity and in so doing, becomes fitted, perfect, through his suffering, to save us. Now, let's acknowledge something. That we find just a bit offensive. I mean, really? I don't get to save myself? No. I'm really that bad? Yes. I need a savior, not a martyr? Yes. Jesus had to condescend? Yes. I'm not even a little sufficient? No. Well, I try hard. Is that not enough? No. You see, my friends, this is why you will find that there are some who will be absolutely glad to have a conversation with you about matters of spiritual things and religious things until you get down to the bone and marrow, if you will, of what it means for Jesus to be Savior. And suddenly, otherwise reasonable people get very unreasonable very fast because it's an assault on their pride. See this, Jesus pioneers our salvation. He accomplishes God's purpose 
He's approved as the Savior. And this is all that accounts for our salvation. He's the one who brings you to glory. He brings many sons to glory. He makes you holy. He sanctifies and those who are sanctified. He makes you part of the family, sons, brothers, the children God has given me. He relieves our shameful condition. Jesus is the one to whom we must look. This is why when this word is used again, founder or author, in chapter 12, it's in the context of saying, looking unto Jesus, the author, the originator, the pioneer of our very salvation. But he not only is the pioneer, the leader, the trailblazer, he also partakes of our nature. And the author cannot help but expand at verse 14 and following what it means when he says that he is identified with us. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There's two key words in that text. You ought to underline or circle or highlight. I know if you don't do that in your Bibles, it's okay. Okay, I don't want to panic you. Destroy, deliver. Destroy, deliver. How does Jesus destroy the work of Satan? How does Jesus deliver his people? It is that embrace of sharing in our flesh and blood. Literally, the word order in the Greek is the very opposite. Our blood and flesh. I'm not making much of that. I'm just saying that the author wants you to recognize something here. This is a wonder that God took on flesh. He actually shares in our humanity. The faith we confess, according to Athanasius, and a few of your ears just perked up because you're doing that in Sunday school this quarter on Athanasius on the Incarnation. Here's some of his affirmations. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and man of the substance of his mother, born into the world. Perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting. Equal to the Father, as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father, as touching his manhood who although he is God and man, yet he's not two, but one Christ. You see, it's Jesus' humanity that secures your liberty. When I read that 14th verse, one of the most powerful statements, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus shared your humanity. The creator became creature. The infinite took on finiteness. The eternal entered time. 
The lawgiver comes subject to the law. The transcendent spirit becomes imminent flesh. Since we are blood and flesh, he takes that on. And through that, he could do two marvelous things. He destroys Satan's work. Satan, from the beginning, desired the destruction of creation in general and man in particular. John 8, 44, you are of your father the devil, Jesus said, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He destroys that work. See, Satan would use death to hold us enthralled. And he would fight against us. Bunyan, in Pilgrim's Progress, early in Pilgrim's Journey, Bunyan has in giving the account of running into Apollyon, the destroyer of Satan. And ultimately, by the armor of God and the sword of faith, shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, he, he wins. And when he's done, like all good warriors, he writes a poem. Great Beelzebub, the captain of this fiend, designed my ruin, therefore, to this end. He sent him harnessed out, and he with rage, that hellish was, did fiercely me engage. But blessed Michael and I believe he means by that symbolically Jesus, helped me, and I by dint of sword did quickly make him fly. Therefore, to him let me give lasting praise and thank and bless his holy name always. He destroys the one who had the power of death. Now, I, I, I've kind of concluded. You know, in the ministry, as long as I've been in the ministry, one of the things you deal with pretty regularly is the matter of death. It's part of the task of shepherding, right? Part of this is to help people as they face death. But here's another thing that I'm learning, having officially become a senior citizen now. It's official. I have a Medicaid, Medicare card and everything. I think about death more than I used to. And I don't mean morbid, usually. But there can be a battle, can there not, as we face that unknown enemy. And each of us has to do this, short of the Lord returning before we reach that place. And this is the place where the comfort of the gospel should come to us. Some of you remember Paul Harvey, who did radio broadcasts. Paul Harvey was one of the most entertaining folk ever uh, on radio. That distinctive voice, his rest of the story broadcasts. And I'm going to summarize this, but he told the story of Dr. A.J. Gordon, who was a famous Boston minister, 
that one Sunday came into the pulpit with an empty birdcage, which in Boston, like in most places, would probably gather everybody's attention. What's the preacher doing up there with a birdcage? Well, he told the story. The day before, he'd run into a little fellow that was walking along with this birdcage full of birds. And so he asked him, so where'd you get those birds, son? Well, I caught them. Well, what are you going to do with them? Well, I'm going to play with them. Well, you can't play with them forever. What are you going to do with them when you're finished playing with them? Well, sir, I have some cats. And when I'm finished playing with them, I'll give them to the cats. I said, son, what would you take for those birds? He said, mister, you don't want these birds. They're just field birds. They're not worth nothing. Dr. Gordon repeated his offer. Boy thought about it. Well, you can have them and the cage for two bucks. Transaction was made. Boy walked away $2 richer. Dr. Gordon walked away with the birds, went into an alley between two buildings and let them go free. And then not one to waste anything from that he found an illustration. If Satan met God in the garden and Satan had a cage, what do you have in the cage, God asked some humans. Where'd you get them? Caught them. What are you going to do with them? Well, I'm going to play with them. Well, you can't play with them forever. What are you going to do with them when you're finished playing with them? And Satan said, I'm going to kill them. And damn them. What would you take? Oh, you don't want these humans. They'll just spit on you and curse you and turn away from you. And we know the transaction. Now, I want to be careful here. I don't want to delve into an error on the atonement. But my brothers and sisters, do you capture the essence of story. We needed rescue. And Christ, by his death, destroys the work of the devil. He delivers us from death. You and I were in prison, Christian. Jesus set us free. Though believers still die, the sting is gone. We know that nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of God. My friend, this is the joy of the freedom you and I possess. How is it that missionaries could go to the field knowing that they were facing likely imminent murder? They believed that they were immortal until God was done with them. And death was not the worst thing. Death was merely the end of this life. They echoed the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Steve Brown talks about freedom a lot. He said he gets invited, if you've ever heard Steve speak, first of all, he makes me sound like a tenor, Okay. The man rumbles. He says he gets a lot of invitations to be a speaker, a motivational speaker at secular events, organizations. He says the money's really good for this kind of speaking, 
But he said, I don't do it. You know why I don't do it? There's two reasons. First, I belong to the king, and it's hard not to talk about him. And, of course, they never want you to do that. And secondly, I turned those down because giving a motivational speech, now I'm gonna, let me give a little ex- explanation here. What he's about to use as a comparison is absolutely, horribly, politically incorrect today, but if you still have any reasoning powers about you, you'll understand it. Okay? Giving a motivational speech to a pagan is sort of like giving a brand new dress to a man. He may like it, but it isn't going to do him any good. The pagan has only one alternative, the prison. Reminds me of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who gave up medicine. And when asked about it later in life, he said it, it just struck home to me. What good is healing the bodies if they're eternally lost? Turned his back on a profitable career as a physician to become a preacher of the gospel and a pastor. Non-Christian friend, do you live in fear of death? Those of you who don't know Jesus this morning, do do you hear those footsteps behind you? Jesus died to free you. The novelist Somerset Maugham once wrote that he looked forward to death, though he didn't believe in an afterlife. But shortly before he died, a nephew of his went for a visit. And this is what he wrote. One afternoon I found Willie, that was what he called Somerset, Willie, reclining on a sofa, peering through his spectacles at a Bible, which had very large print. He looked horribly wizened, and his face was grim. I've been reading the Bible you gave me, and I've come across the quotation, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I must tell you, my dear Robin, that text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. Of course, it's all a lot of bunk, but the thought is quite interesting all the same. That evening in the drawing room after dinner, Will flung himself down on the sofa. Oh, Robin, I'm so tired. He gave a gulp and buried his face in his hands, and then he looked up and his, this fear in him, he, he was crushing Robin's hands. He was staring towards the floor and his face contorted with fear, trembling violently. Willie's ashen face stared in horror ahead of him and suddenly he began to shriek, go away. I'm not ready. I'm not dead yet. I'm not dead yet, I tell you. His high-pitched, terror-struck voice seemed to echo from wall to wall. I looked around, but the room was empty. Dear friend, hear me in this. You don't have to live in fear of death. If you're his, death is conquered. Death does not win. Through his humanity, Jesus has then become sympathetic 
What beautiful language here, right? At verses 17 and 18 as we come to the end. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. He's merciful to us. His mercy is so great he became like us in every way except one. He was sinless. Had he not been sinless, his coming would have been useless. He suffered in temptation. Now, you and I have no idea what that suffering was like because in us, we're already fallen. We're already affected by sin from conception forward. There's always an answering echo in the human heart when tempted. We want that because we are sinners by nature. Jesus had no such nature. See, you and I, when we resist, it is right and it is godly as a thing to do. But how about for the one who never in his life sinned to have this temptation placed before him? His mercy is extraordinary. And remember, he calls us his. He united with us. He became one of us. It's, it's reminiscent of a story that Marianne Bird tells about growing up as a little girl years ago with a cleft palate. And when she started school, this is before they could do much about it, uh, it was clear, she said, how others looked at her. A little girl with a misshapen lip, a crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and garbled speech. And when her classmates would say, what happened to your lip? She'd tell them I'd fallen and cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow falling and having an accident seemed more tolerable to her than telling them she was born this way. But she had a teacher in second grade, Mrs. Leonard by name, and she was, she called, I, I love this description, short, round, and happy. <laughs> Notice I'm not looking up. A sparkling lady. Annually, we had a hearing test. Mrs. Leonard would give the test to everyone in the class, and finally it was my turn. And I knew from past years that we stood against the door and covered one ear, and the teacher sitting at her desk would whisper something, and we'd have to repeat it back. Things like, the sky is blue, or do you have new shoes? I waited there for those words that God must have put in her mouth, those seven words that changed my life. Mrs. Leonard said in her whisper, I wish you were my little girl. Now, I know that, that was good. Get out the Kleenex. You've gone all sappy on us. Folks, in our failed, disastrous life of rebellion, the Father purposed to rescue us. And the Son comes and joins us in our humanity to make us fellow heirs, part of the family. He was faithful in his act as high priest, in his act as sacrifice, who pours out his life for us to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Further, he does this and shows that while he's tempted, he's able to help us. He understands the intensity. So hear this, my friend. This is the Jesus to whom we look. 
Don't let anybody get you to take your eyes off him. He is enough. He is, honestly, more than enough. What he does is gloriously sufficient. And he does it not out of arrogance, but out of humility. And not out of some strange act from heaven, just a declaration. Rather, yes, heaven makes declaration, but he comes among us. He lives among us. He dies for us. And is raised immortal to now intercede for us. Christian, this is your salvation. Now, aren't you, don't you feel just a little bit ashamed how much time you spent this week on stuff that doesn't matter? Hmm? You lost sight of this? And I'm not saying there ain't stuff out there you need to do. I'm, I, I get that. But do you understand the, the orientation here? We are to look to him. Why him? Because he is the Savior fitted, fitting to save us. And he destroyed death to deliver you from that bondage. Oh, my friend, if you're not Christ's, I say this as plainly as I can right now, run to him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Run to him. Cry out to him. Well, I don't know how to say it. Don't worry too much about the words he interprets. Okay? Cry out to life from him. And Christian, as much as lies within you, exalt and exult in the glorious Savior given us, the great high priest, the one who identifies with us, who calls us brother and sister, Jesus Christ. Our Father, forgive us for all the times we make less of Jesus than we should. And Lord, we know it's not typically by design. We're not setting out to make less of him. But in our fretfulness, in our busyness, in our worries, in our discouragement at suffering and struggling, the wounding that is our failure to resist against sin. Far too often we lose sight of him. And so our Father, our prayer is that we would look unto Jesus, the author, the pioneer, the trailblazer for our faith, the fitting Savior. Who with deity took on humanity and acted on our behalf to destroy Satan and deliver us from death. And in this we greatly rejoice.
in Jesus' name.